I think the world will return to pre-pandemic low inflation environment. The uh, inflation break-even curve told us all the way along. Look at the 10-year, 5-year, 5-year forward inflation break-even rate. It's already back to pre-pandemic lows. Even two-year inflation break-even rate, back to 2%. Walmart have spoken out. We're going back to the pre-pandemic lows. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and the geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Alan Dunn. Thanks for the introduction, Niels. Today I'm joined by Chen Zhao, Chief Global Strategist at Alpine Macro. Chen's been in the markets uh, a number of years. Prior to joining Alpine Macro, Chen was co-director of macro research at Brandywine Global Investment Management. And prior to that, he spent uh, many years at BCA Research, where he initially wrote the China and Emerging Markets publications before becoming chief global strategist and author of the flagship global investment strategy publication. Chen, great to have you. How, how are you? Uh, how is all with you today? Very good. Thank you for uh, for the invite. Uh, more than happy to talk about anything you want me to talk about. So, uh, that's great. Well, we normally start off by asking people to tell us a little bit about their experience in the markets and how they get into economics and financial markets. And, and obviously, you've spent many years on the research side as well as some time uh, in investment management. So what, how did you initially get started in, in the markets? Well, I, uh, I was just sent to the uh, United States uh, for study by the Chinese government in the late 80s. Uh, I was doing my PhD in economics. At the time, uh, China was a pretty hot topic. Everybody wanted to know what's going on in the early 90s. And then at the time, uh, there's a company called, well, there's a company called BCA Research. Uh, the chairman of that firm, Tony Beck, who is really uh, very early uh, on this China story. So he said, yeah, this thing is, is getting big, so we better be uh, in the right place to launch some research. So he went out and find me and say, hey, this is, uh, well, at least at the time, at the time I'm, I'm, I was a Chinese, that's for, that's for obvious reasons, but give it a try. So that was when I was hired in uh, 
early 90s, uh, 1992 to be precise. And then uh, he said, you know, why don't we just try to do a China publication? So that's when I launched DCA's first China publish publication. It's called the China Analyst. At the time, I think it was the earliest China-focused investment research publication in the whole world. I don't think anybody else actually had China-focused research. But anyway, that was 1992, and actually I ran that publication for a couple of years. And then we had this Asian crisis in 1998. And then uh, at the time, uh, everybody would want to understand what's going on in the emerging market. That's when I took over uh, the job, the task of creating a BCA's emerging market strategy. So that's when I created the BCA emerging market strategy. You know, basically I wrote two publications simultaneously for a number of years. And then uh, 2005, I became uh, the firm's chief global strategist. At the time, the company went through some kind of turmoil. Some people left, some people but anyway, it was, it was at the time it was a bit of a uh, chaotic. That's when I I took over the global research, and I ran it for ten years, from two thousand five all the way to two thousand fifteen, and then I decided that uh, um, I, I want to try something else, so that's why I joined Briny One, which is a big global bond funds. So I was their co-ed research for two years. And then I decided, so that is not something that I want to do either for a long period of time. So I still love research. That's when I uh, co-funded this Alpine Macro. Right now, I have about 40 people, about 45, 42, 45. I lost common, you know, apps are growing pretty fast. I have a whole range of products that are, are, are already uh, offering to the clients. So here we go. That's my story in a nutshell. Great. Well, a lot of interesting um, stuff you've been involved in markets for us. So we might we might go back over some of those uh, interesting periods and particularly China. I'm sure we'll get on to China later on. But the fact you were covering China in the early 90s um, must give you a very interesting uh, perspective. But maybe just focusing in on the current juncture at the moment, it's been I guess an unusual cycle uh, in, in 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 the economy and and markets in the sense that you know U.S. rates have gone from zero to over five percent. A lot, you know, going back a couple of years, people didn't think they could go above maybe two and a half percent. And notwithstanding all of that, growth continues to be pretty solid. Obviously, we had job numbers recently that pretty okay. The unemployment rate still at a multi-decade low. So, I mean, what's your perspective on why the economy has been so resilient in this cycle and that rates have had to go up so much? It's a very interesting question, an extremely important one, because if you don't understand what has gone on, you would not be able to understand what will go on in the future. So let me give you my two cents. We took a positive view on the U.S. equities since uh, September last year. So lots of our clients probably know, know that. Uh, right now, we're taking down our bullishness uh, towards stocks. Uh, we're not calling. We're not calling for a new bear market or, or anything like that. I think there got to be a. There are few major concerns uh, that we need to pay attention to. You just mentioned the economic resilience of the U.S. Surprises most of the people. I have heard a lot of explanations. 
I'm telling you, none of these explanations really convinced me that they got the story right. I think I have a great story. I'm not trying to sell you anything, but I'm just saying. Nobody has actually noticed one big thing happening in the United States. What is it? It's a massive physical expansion going on. Since July last year, I'm just giving you the magnitude. The magnitude is unbelievable. I, I cannot understand why nobody was talking about that. Okay. See, July last year, okay, U.S. fiscal spending. It's gone through the roof. We're talking about 20% annual, annualized increase, spending side. And at the same time, tax receipts collapsed by about half a trillion. So the net new physical thrust to the U.S. economy since the summer, since the third quarter of last year, was about $1.5 trillion. What is it? Five, $1.5 trillion is about 5 6% of GDP. Come on. That is, that is a huge number. I, I cannot understand why people don't talk about that, okay? If you have a 6% of fiscal expansion, by the way, this is extraordinary in the sense that if you look at the U.S. history, most of the time, monetary policy and fiscal policy work in the same direction. We have monetary easing, usually fiscal policy also easing because of this internal stabilizer, right? You have a recession, Tax collection usually go down. Government spending usually going up because of welfare spending and things like that. We call that internal stabilizer. So the, the, most of the time, these two policies move together. Last time that they diversed was 2017 when Trump cut taxes, but the Fed was also raising rates. That was the first time. But hey, at the time, inflation was low, undersh undershot, not a big deal. Okay, you cut taxes, the Fed was trying to normalize. Uh, interest rate. That was the first time. This is second time, but much more consequential. The Fed is tightening at the most aggressive pace ever. And at the same time, the federal government is pumping a load of stimulus into the system. This is quite an extraordinary thing. I think that explains everything that we have gone through. What is it? Well, Think about why the hell stock markets just kept running at the time that interest rates are rising too. Because physical stimulus, physical stimulus support growth and therefore stock prices. Why stock prices kept going up? Bond yields are, 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 are also held high. Well, because of physical stimulus. The physical stimulus basically suppresses bond, bond prices and as supporting stocks. That's another reason that you have this weird combination of rising stock price volatility rising stock valuation, but also rising bond yields. That is very strange, very unusual combination, right? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it does seem to be something that has been missed by a lot of analysts, uh, as you say, a kind of a significant uh, fiscal deficit of the order of kind of five, 6% of GDP. Is that just, I guess, a typical electoral cycle in the sense that obviously we have an election coming up next year, or how do you see that evolving over time? No, it's not really typical at all. Um, I think the, uh, the Biden administration passed the three spending bills, in Inflation Reduction Act, CHIP Act, and uh, the, the Infrastructure Acts. All these three bills basically were passed when the, uh, when the Democrats controlled the White House, the, uh, the, the Congress, and the Senate. So basically, 
that was a very rare moment that they rushed through the three three spending program. That's why this thing is significant. Most of the time in the peace uh, in the post war history, um, it's not. It's very rare to see very proactive physical policy at the time when the Fed is doing something. Uh, how how I see this in going forward, I think that is very important question. My message here is that I think right now we're at the maximum strength of this physical stimulus. I think uh, from the most likely from uh, from next two to three months, that physical kick on the U.S. economy will begin just to uh, diminish. When I'm saying that, these three spending programs, once they started, there is always a big jump in in the in the program in the spending in various spending uh, uh, projects. But these programs are, are, are extended over the over next five years. Actually, the, the whole funding process is, 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 is a uh, multi-year process. So I would say once you, you adjust upward your spending level, the net incremental increases will diminish and eventually dies, right? So I would say probably starting from next month or so, maybe maybe next two months or so, the, uh, the, the net stimulus is going to diminish and then eventually it's going to go down very fast. The physical thrust might become physical drag early next year. Most part of this year, at least the first half of this year, the world was based on one theme and one theme only. U.S. recession. How possible the U.S. would not have a recession? Okay? That's everybody's view. Now, the whole world has changed. Everybody who's on the same, looking at the same direction, there will be no recession. That's sort of a narrative today. Soft landing, no landing, whatever. I'm very concerned that actually at the time when everybody was looking at no landing, soft landing, you may end up with some kind of economic slump, 2024. Or maybe recession. Why am I saying that? Well, the reason is, is fairly straightforward. Number one, because of this fiscal stimulus, the Fed policy rate was lifted, was lifted way higher than they would otherwise, right? So once the fiscal uh, stimulus dies, you're left with rates that are much higher than the economy can afford. That's one the that's when the, uh, the economy might erupt into trouble. So that's point number one. Point number two, we all understand monetary policy work with the law of variable lags. So nobody actually uh, bothered to measure what kind of lag we're really talking about. I, I use my ruler, look at all the past cycles. I'm telling you, I can give you uh, precise uh, lags on average. If you talk about inflation is 27. 23 months from the date the monetary policy uh, tightened to the date the inflation peaked. You'd usually required 23 months. For the economy, it's about a call that 18 to 19 months. Okay. So in other words, right now we're into that spot when the previous rate hikes should be filled more and more accurately by the economy going forward. So you could have a perfect storm of some sort when the physical thrust, physical support is removed at the time, 
a ratio lap too high, and the lag impact of monetary tightening beginning to filter through the economy. They put all those things together. That's why we have turned a bit of a cautious because we were bullish. We were comfortable to be bullish when everybody was so bearish. Right now, being bullish is a part of the consensus. So that's why we are positioned to be very bullish on bonds. Nobody wants bonds. We're bullish on bonds. I think the bond the bonds are gonna deliver way better returns than stocks probably twenty twenty four. The element to the macro picture that obviously you called correctly as being the inflation picture, you know, if we, inflation has come down now, even even with the low, you know, the very promising June number, there still remains a bit of caution, you know, around the wage growth. So, so just a couple of things on inflation. One, how are you so confident inflation would come down given what you saw on the fiscal side? Was that not going to be a cautionary element to to the optimistic view on inflation. And two, now, do you think the consensus view now is that inflation is under control and is that a concern or do you still, are you still as optimistic on inflation as you were? My, I think there are, there are two to three points I think it's worth uh, remembering. Number one, go and check the inflation, the interest rate this time around. The inflation topped out the same month as the Fed started to raise interest rates. These two things happened simultaneously, which tells you what? Which tells you that this inflation so far has nothing to do with Fed. The Fed, we know that it has a lot of variable lags. Come on. You know, the inflation already dropped before you raise rates. So it got nothing to do with you, right? You being Fed. Okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that if that is a true, that if that is true, then, uh, given as I said, if you measure a post-war period or the inflation versus uh, monetary tightening versus inflation, the time lag is usually 22 months, 23 months. Then you would say, so far this inflation is all about these supply disruptions. And the uh, San Francisco Fed, they basically decompose inflation in two components. One is supply-side driven, the other one is demand driven. Now, the supply-driven inflation is completely come down, collapsed almost. Or the demand-driven inflation is beginning to, just beginning to turn down. I would argue, as time passes by, as we're approaching to that typical time lag, inflation is going to go down because of the demand side is going to be constrained. Aside from what I just said, that physical support will locally will probably diminish and the economy is probably going to go into some kind of slum next year. As I'm saying, I'm sticking to the, to the call that all evidence suggests that, that inflation could fall much faster and harder than most people anticipate. Why I'm very bullish on bonds. And I mean, it's interesting last year, a big theme was around concerns about stagflation and um, and not just in the markets, if you listen to policymakers, you know, Jackson Hole, it seemed to be a big theme about, you know, deglobalization, all of these things nearshoring and that we may see structurally higher inflation over time. Hearing less about that this year, but what do you think? Is that, is, were they valid concerns or not? I, I don't think that's, that's a very superficial 
observation, uh, superficial understanding of, of economics and markets as well. So I'm saying that offshoring, deglobalization, we actually had a real-time test. What was that? 2016, 2017, China, U.S., they had a trade war. Tariff basically jacked up, remember? Well, I mean, from an economic perspective, it's it's a, it's a, a negative inward shift in the aggregate supply curve. It's, exactly, they jacked is up. That, the, but is that not a, a reasonable observation to make? Are, no. You're, you're dismissive here, of that here point. Is, here, here, important here is this. They jacked up tariff rate against other. You know what? If you check inflation in the United States, came down. Global traded goods prices came down. 2016, 17, and 18. Three-year deflation. The U.S. inflation came down very, very quickly too. Why? Two coping mechanisms. Why you had a tariff or deglobalization. One is, of course, pass on the prices to consumers. The other one is you compromise your profits. You absorb by your profit. It's a profit or prices. So we agree that that tariff does not mean that you have to basically jack up prices. You can compromise your profits. If you look at 2017, 2018, stock prices came down. Bond yields actually dropped. Bond prices actually were strong. That's my first observation. That's my second observation. Onshoring, friendly shoring, whatever you want to call that. Look at the U.S. manufacturing share of GDP. Look at the U.S. manufacturing job as share of GDP. It has no change. It's like 11.3% of GDP flat line for the last five, six, seven years. Even though you're talking about the you know, onshoring, onshoring, stuff like that, it, has, it hasn't happened. I've done, it, has, it has not happened in any meaningful scale. Okay? That's my, that's not, I'm saying it. I'm just watching that at like hawk every day. Uh, what about the, the boom in factory construction? It's up about 100 billion um, this year versus last year. Well, there, there, are, there are about more than 100 billion dollars actually went away to somewhere else. Yeah. But in aggregate, that's what the data has shown, that the um, manufacturing and construction, um, construction of manu- in the manufacturing sector is up about 100 billion more than last year. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying, I just checked manufacturing GDP as a share of US GDP has been dead flat. Yeah, I mean, I think the manufacturing output, but this is more the, the, on the construction side. Exactly. There's no output. There's no employment. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I don't, this is the point I think has been made is we're seeing the construction now and presumably that in time will lead to the manufacturing output. I can check that, but I can tell you another data, which is extremely important. U.S. CapEx has been contracting about a 15% annualized rate in real term for the last six months. So I don't know where you get that data, but we can check. We can check. We can challenge each other. But I'm telling you, US. Well, I, presume, I mean, obviously, you've got different components to the investment demand side. Obviously, residential construction has been weaker. No, no, I'm talking about business equipment. Yeah. Software. Software. That, yeah. Yes. Okay. Software and equipment. Is that? Is that, I mean, but I'm talking saying, about plants and facilities. So two yes, different things. I don't, yeah. see, I don't. I don't see the evidence to, of of yeah. that. No, that's fair enough. Yeah, I don't see the evidence of that. So I that's why I personally don't believe that. I personally don't believe. I mean, besides, if you look at your tradable goods prices, U.S. tradable goods prices, U.S. import prices, it's falling. It is a negative number. I'm not lying. You can check that any time. Okay? 
So I don't see I don't see these things has become has become a material impact on and in, in, in terms of affecting U.S. inflation dynamics. In the end, we're all macroeconomic economists. We all understand one thing: inflation only comes from where aggregate demand bigger than aggregate supply. That is a precondition for inflation. What is aggregate demand versus aggregate supply? In a reduced form, is there only one thing and one thing only? Available saving versus your desired investment. Right? If you available saving is bigger than your desired investment, sorry, you have to deflate. That's all. That's it. That's it. That's all. I'm telling you, I don't see a sustained spurt of desired investment in the US that is going. Okay. But is was that not the intention of the CHIPS Act, et cetera, to try and encourage people like Taiwan Semiconductor to build plants? I, I read recently that they, they wanted to build a plant in Arizona. They've had to delay that type of thing. Are you, so are you kind of skeptical that that's going to be a meaningful trend? I am totally skeptical because if you don't have to build that in China. You don't have to build that in, in, in countries that are no longer friendly to you. But you don't want to attract these investments back to here because it's not possible, man. The, the cost, labor cost is different. The business environment is different. It's not competitive. I mean, if it's the same thing, Chinese government screw up a lot of things by, by the state intervention. You're using the same thing to fend off the Chinese uh, bad practice. That's the wrong thing. So it hasn't been effective. I don't see that. I think the world will return to pre-pandemic low inflation environment. The uh, inflation break-even curve told us all the way along. Look at the ten-year, five-year, five-year forward inflation break-even rate. It's already back to pre-pandemic lows. Even two-year inflation break-even rate back to two percent. The bond market have spoken out. We're going back to the pre-pandemic lows. Okay, okay. So given that backdrop, how do you see? So obviously, growth has significant headwinds next year. Inflation to continue to come down. Do you think rates will go all the way back to, to zero or are we in a new normal or, or not? And then basically saying that that has everything to do with your judgment call on R-star, equilibrium. So the question here is the R-star, well, you know, before the pandemic hit, we know that R-star is about 1%, right? Plus minus at 1%. We're talking about real. Real, real, yeah. I think yeah. the Fed would have said maybe a half percent. Yeah, a half percent. Whatever. Right there. So my question, I have a simple line. I ask simple question all the time. I say, is today's R-star lower or higher than pre-pandemic? Real. Yeah. I think it's going to be lower. The reason for that is very simple. Economic growth, steady state, consists of two things and two things only. Labor productivity growth plus labor force growth. Two things give you a steady state, real world. Now, for the United States, labor productivity growth is always steady, about one half percent, sometimes two, sometimes one and a half, about last decade or so. It's about always one and a half. So let's take that as, as, as your steady state. Your labor force, man, US labor force is being way lagged behind. We have a zero percent, we have a zero percent of population growth close to 0% labor force growth. If you look at the labor, actually, the gap between GDP and what, what is required for the labor force to grow, there's about a five, don't quote me, about a five million people short relative to where the economy is. 
So if you take that into consideration, you ask, you, you ask, you, you tell me whether your steady state growth would be higher or lower. I think it could be lower just from the labor force growth point of view. They, they can resolve that problem easily to import a lot of people. I'm not sure that it's a popular thing in the U.S. today. So everybody, both candidates do not seem to be pro-immigrant or pro-immigration. So I think, you know, you have to basically take it as a given that the U.S. labor force steady state growth rate is probably plus minus zero uh, percent around there. So if that is the case, yeah, then you basically down about a half a point in terms of steady state growth rate. How possibly will R star be higher if your steady state growth rate be lower than pre-pandemic? I don't get it. Okay. Well, I guess to, the other point that people make around this is, and I saw Larry Summers talking to Olivia Blanchard around this. They were dating uh, uh, this kind of R versus G kind of equation, and and Summers was of the view that R star might be higher over time. I think it was partially around the, the higher investment demands. Um, deglobalization was part of it. But the other, other question would be, other element to it is the um, greening of the global economy and that we, there will have to be a higher investment just to produce the same level of output that we're used to. Is that a valid observation? Well, you know, Larry, Larry Hummer, uh, Summers, he was the author of Secular Stagnation. Come on. He was the big promoter of negative equilibrium real rate in order to equilibrate aggregate demand and aggregate supply. His thesis is that you got to build New York, you have to rebuild like Gordon Airport is, is, is embarrassing because you have, you have to spend because you got too much excessive savings. That was the story uh, all the way to uh, 2020. So I, I don't know what has changed his mind except that volumes are right now higher. Okay. But the point here is this. Um, for us to have uh, sustained high investment growth, think about productivity. All these years, if you ca if you calculate the the capital efficiency frontier, this is basically going steady, very steady, just like that, almost like forty five degrees. Meaning what? Basically, meaning for for the same amount of incremental up, increasingly less amount of capital is required. Because of technology change, that basically is saying, for a given society, as technology uh, progresses, your ability to absorb your savings is getting less and less because you don't need that much capital investment to generate same output growth. That's a tech. That's called technology, right? I don't think that changed quite a bit. I mean, I think if anything, probably we're going to see accelerated technology change. But in relation to, you know, changing to more climate-friendly type of production, does that, you know, do we have to change all of the, the global infrastructure, et cetera? Is that not a one-off kind of surge of investment that might be required? That is the risk, you know, the, the, the green side of the thing, because there is a lot of government subsidies involved. That, that there is a lot of inefficiency involved. That, that is a risk. But I think by and large, the Chinese probably going to walk away from the green uh, restrict. You know, as basically, to, if Trump get back to the White House, he's going to toss that out a window uh, in no time. So I think that's a risk. I agree with that. But I, I think, you know, by and large, uh, as society getting a, you know, the aging process continues, people need to save more to, to afford 
longer working life, right? And also the uh, and also the technology change is such that you know uh, your 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 capital efficiency frontier is just getting too too high, and you don't need much capital to uh, generate all these outputs. Think about, I just keep thinking about Alpha Omega. How much? Ca- what is our capital investment? It's just a bunch of computers, and then that's a human ca- it's a human being, and then that which which started you know off off the ground and start to run again. So, what kind of capital you need? So this is the explanation of why we've seen the sustained kind of decline over time for, in bond yields, and you think that that resumes kind of after this tightening cycle? Finally, after after this uh, this extraordinary disruption of the pandemic, it's like almost like a war, right? So when when you have a pandemic, you shut down the economy. It's no different from you know, having a war. You shut down your big chunk of your supply, got an inflation spurt, and the whole thing basically back to normal. So that that's what that's what I'm thinking. We're probably going to go move back. Okay. So the other point that people raise as part of this debate, then, I, I, you know, on the kind of the multi-decade inflation outlook, is China, and obviously you're very well placed to speak about China. And I guess the view being that China was a, you know, disinflationary force, you know, when it came into WTO, etc. And yeah, and then within China, you know, the the, the demographic is is changing there. That China may cease being that kind of disinflationary force. So, so what's your well, China is no longer a disinflation force. It is a deflationary force now. So uh, the China problem is there, there are two sides of the problem. Of course, uh, I think it's demographic demographic stuff is completely overrated. I mean, I'll just keep telling people, hey, China used to have a much bigger population, but the same size of the economy. Now, India basically uh, outgrow China by population. Now, India has a bigger population, but Chinese economy is five times bigger. So yes, India and Ray has on has on the uh, the population race a loss in the economy five times versus uh, about the same time, right? So that we're talking about early nineties. So India is about what five hundred million people. China about eight hundred million people. Now is the same. At the time, at the time, the Chinese economy was about what thirty percent bigger. Now five times bigger. But anyway, it doesn't matter. So the Chinese problem got two two issues. One is um, macro issue. The other one is a micro issue. My, micro issue, in my view, is a much bigger issue. What I'm saying that is basically it is because of Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is a populist leader, has no clear economic philosophy in his policy. He just moving back and around, back and forth. He talked about all thing, everything. Nobody understand what what the hell he was talking about, to be honest. That's why the private businesses basically had lost confidence in him. Nobody want to invest. Nobody, everybody needs to think about it. You know, if, if you don't, if you don't know what he is really up to, why on earth anybody, you know, using your own money to invest in that economy? Nobody wanted that. That's why lots of private Entrepreneurs, they're trying to get, get out. So that is a much more fundamental, much more serious problem than the macro. The macro problem here is that the Chinese government is basically scared by its own shadow. What is it? Because they, uh, they, they, they owe. We told him, we in the best told them that they cannot build up their debt too much. If you don't build up their debt too much, you're going to look for trouble. So don't. Lever up, so they don't. If they don't lever up, 
then you got an over-saving problem that is so severe that actually prices go down. That's a classic example of saving exceed, far exceed the desired investment. So then the, the only adjustment process that can happen is your price decline or your output decline or both. Right now I can see, I can tell the Chinese price, I'm just looking at major measures of Chinese CPI actually is beginning to fall. So they need to drop that debt argument, just, just go for a spending spree or actually subsidize consumer spending. Give them, give consumer uh, a spending coupon with expiry date. Why not? Each household gave you $10,000. Have to spend the money, otherwise uh, it expires by the end of this year. Why don't we do that? They are just not imaginative. He is a bad policymaker, period. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you see that playing out? I mean, obviously we've got the you know real estate deleveraging and we will have deflation in China. Yeah, and so it's like from a from a macro trading investing perspective, how how would you play that? Bullish of our bonds. I think the Chinese local currency bonds probably going to be a one percent yield a year. Why not? And in ter- and in terms of the currency, what, what what's the impact on that? I think the currency probably they, they they don't like the currency to be at this level. Of course, they want the currency to be a little bit weaker. But right now, they they're also very mindful of you know all hostilities that is around uh, China. They don't want to piss off too many people, too many countries. But I think you know there there is no no question in my mind that if you have a deflation, the way out is to get your currency down. So putting all that together, obviously the picture you're painting is very much inflation, very much under control, economic challenges as we head into... Yeah, the biggest surprise now, going forward, when everybody was so bullish and positive, I think the big surprise that is, is that the growth actually could surprise us on the downside, especially the U.S. fiscal side is, is withdrawn. Rates are already lifted at a restricting level. And you can see that most of the time in the, in the past couple of decades, we, we can always count on China to reflate and to uh, bail out the rest of the world in terms of growth. So this time around, it's not happening. So all of those basically saying uh, there will be a period where bonds is going to rally pretty high. So, I mean, looking at bonds, you touched on it a little bit earlier. Have you been surprised as that yields haven't gone up more in the sense that we've had this strong inversion of yield curve? Or is that just the market forward looking towards recessions? I think this is all explained by the physical expansion. If you have a physical expansion, the Fed will have to be hawkish to offset the physical side. That's, that's why from the monetary point of view, uh, you have a short end of the curve probably be lifted or sus- being sustained at higher than it would otherwise be. That's uh, 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 sustained at a level that it'd be higher than it would otherwise be. So that's all I. That's how I see this. Uh, but there's no there's no other fancy explanation except that that yeah, you, your public sector is adding growth. Yeah, and obviously we've had the um, the Fitch downgrade recently, which most people see as. A bit of a side joke, but at the same time, um, there is a concern about maybe rising issuance levels. As you mentioned, U.S. is already running a strong budget deficit at a time of full employment. I mean, are you concerned about the debt dynamics in the U.S.? 
No, uh, I think U.S. debt is all denominated in the U.S. dollar. They never borrow in foreign currencies. If you believe the treasury paper is not as good as U.S. dollar bill, which is the uh, liability from the Federal Reserve, then the treasury might run into a problem. But they are the same quality in my view. The dollar bill versus the uh, three-month T-bill or 10-year bond T-bill, the same thing. So meaning their balance sheet is interchangeable. Why why you worry about something that is not going to happen? Okay. And if, I mean, obviously, you've been in markets many decades. I mean, in, in the past, we have seen episodes like that where U.S. debt and deficit levels were a concern and bond, the bond vigilantes were the enforcers. That doesn't seem to be the case of late. Is that a thing of the past, do you think? The last thing happened that bond, the so-called bond vigilante came into play it was 1993. Uh, bond yield backed up about 100 basis points or so. Uh, I think 130 basis points, something like that. But that was a very different era. At the time, there was no communication from the Fed. Nobody know, nobody know uh, what the Fed wanted to do. And then it came out and then just shocked the market. Everybody was in panic. Here, everybody was, you know, the, the Fed communicated everything. I think it's over-communicated already, so everybody knows their intention. So that kind of episode is, is very difficult to, to repeat anymore. And then uh, August 11th, 2011, that was uh, S&P 500. I'm sorry, that's a, that was standard poor downgrade the U.S. Treasury, same thing. The bond market spiked up about, a, about three days, bond yields. And then a, a month later, a yield made new lows, all-time lows. So this type of thing, I think the market figured that that out a long time ago. This is just, there's zero default risk from the U.S. government. So why bother? That's why I don't understand what uh, what Fitch is doing. Yeah. So I mean, from that perspective, um, obviously you're quite bullish on bonds here. Now, do you see kind of yields have already? probably presumably have already peaked. I mean, do you think we're at kind of multi-year highs and peaked? I mean, do you think deals will be heading back towards? I think we saw we saw the highs last week, probably with a 10-year treasury, 420, 420 something, 423. Can't remember exactly. I think we probably saw the highs for this cycle. I My model basically is saying the, the, the equilibrium yields is probably 2.8, 2.7 around there. So we're almost two sigma overshoot the the, uh, the fair value of, and fair value as of as of today, yeah. As of today, yes. Okay, um, and I mean, looking at the, at the situation in in Europe, obviously, I mean, you've had a slightly different dynamic there. You know, you haven't had this. Okay, you've had pockets of uh, fiscal support, but but um, in aggregate, nothing of the of the order that we've seen in the US. How do you see the growth and inflation dynamics playing out in Europe? Well, actually, you know, in some of the countries, the uh, the fiscal support is quite quite substantial. Actually, you think about UK, all this uh, subsidies to uh, energy bills and you know the gas, especially uh, in some of the continental Europe. So these are not a chump change. It, it, it explains things, but I think the long and short of the story there is. Um, I personally don't think the Eurozone faces a serious inflation problem at all. You can see the growth rate is already gravitate towards zero. And then I look at 
eurozone wage growth, especially the expected wage increases, basically come down, way down already. So it's an energy issue, in my view. And of course, um, there, is also, uh, there is also an element of uh, labor market being reasonably strong, too, uh, for some odd reasons. I think I also lump that into uh, physical support, probably, because otherwise the Eurozone labor market would have been probably would have been weaker than now. So I would say I don't see a serious inflation, right? You know, core inflation coming off pretty quickly, too, in, in across Europe. So I see very similar dynamics playing out because uh, Europe as a whole really does not have a lot of uh, endogenous growth momentum is really leverage on either some, you know, China for, or, or some countries and the U.S. for the others. So I think if, if these two uh, big engines start to run into a problem, I can't see that Eurozone is going to be uh, a shining star. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to, to create a, a picture like that. Okay, so a similar kind of scenario, probably the ECB. Yeah. Um, and yeah. The German bonds going to be interesting. German bonds, I think, is going to be a good buy. I'm telling you, and 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 then the sell-off, the relative sell-off is bigger than the U.S. And I mean, obviously, there's a, a cyclical bull case, and then, I mean, beyond that, it sounds like you see the world going back to similar to the 2010s. Is that it? Low inflation, low low growth. Yeah, I think we'll pop up. Pro uh, pre-pandemic, I think the world is basically going to go back to 2018, 19 type of, type of situation. Primarily because I don't see anything that really fundamentally changed, except that there is a hostility uh, between China and, and the U.S. Yes, that, that's that's true, but that also also erupted during that period of time. The fundamental judgment call has to be on saving versus desired investment. Well, on Earth. The developed world where the population gravitate towards zero to negative worlds, all of a sudden you have a very strong desired investment that is popping up. I cannot see that happen because don't forget population growth of a nation is your natural aggregate demand growth. If your population growth gravitate towards zero, your natural demand growth will gravitate towards zero. Think about Japan. Japan has investment. It's basically replacement investment. You just make sure that your capital stock is not completely obsolete. And from a political perspective and, uh, you know, the spending side, um, yeah, obviously you touched on if Trump got in maybe in the next uh, election, you know, it, it, well, anything in relation to green spending would be thrown out. But maybe if, 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 it's, if it's Biden or a Democrat again, I mean, do you not think globally there's a shift now, having had the uh, experience of COVID where, where governments wrote checks, and as you say now, we're doing it on an ongoing basis, is that not more the norm these days to, that we're going to generally see more spending? But the best we can hope is gridlock in the United States. Gridlock is always good. Government can't do anything, just economy run it wrong. I think most likely it would be a gridlock. I mean, either either of them get elected, it would be a disaster to me. Even Democrats, I mean, what, he, does he run the thing or somebody else runs it? I don't know. He's half steep, half weak. I don't know. Trump is even crazier, so I don't know why the Americans have to choose between these two. So I'll, I'll just stop it right here. Okay. I mean, you, we've touched on how you've been in the markets a long time. You started off, you know, Asian financial crisis. You've seen dot-com, global financial crisis, you know, European debt crisis. 
COVID. You know, we've had a lot of crises over time. You're painting a picture of things looking pretty rosy. We're back to 2018, 2019 again. I mean, what are the things you would be concerned about from a kind of a global risks perspective? Uh, actually, if we go back to the pre-pandemic world, that was not very rosy because you, you take some deflationary shock to knock world economy back to pre-pandemic inflation level. Because right now, the level is still high. It's still there. But yeah, but I mean, 2019, you had generally low unemployment and low inflation. Yeah, there was, uh, the world The world is, uh, low inflation is not necessarily a good thing, to be honest. As you can see that uh, uh, 2019, 2018, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of a pricing power issue. That's when the, the inflation actually under shock for the whole decades, last decade. We got a repeated QE, and that was also last decade, right? So it was not a beautiful decade anyway, but, uh, but I, I think... If you talk about risk factor, there are lots of risks. As I said, that uh, you might have a recession 2024. 20, you might. And then uh, when everybody was hunky-dory, no problem, boom, you had some kind of a, a shock right here. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that the, this uh, monetary, I look at the uh, quantitative tightening that is still going on right now. Uh, that 2018, that quant QT caused a problem. Remember that our market went down about 15% or so, and then he uh, being, uh, he being uh, Jerome Powell basically uh, chickened out eventually. Right? Remember that? So we have, we might have that kind of situation too. And to mention geopolitically speaking, there are a whole bunch of, is the world is arguably way worse than uh, five, six years ago. Today, I mean, everybody's you know, the, the China US that is the biggest biggest uh, story in town. I mean, two biggest economy in, in, in the world that are that are basically trying to disengage from each other. That's not that cannot be good news. So I don't know what exactly to be the shock, but I, I, I can see a lot of problems. Yeah. And that that China US disengagement, I mean do you see that as having meaningful economic impacts or do you see them as those impacts as being deflationary as others? So it has already slashed China's economic growth um, by no small amount, in my view. So if so far, that is very, uh, that's a very reasonable assumption because China is a producer, American is a consumer. When your customer, when your customer pissed off, usually, usually it's, it is a supplier that actually take the heat, right? So Chinese are being, China is a supplier. So that's why when American pissed off, uh, the supplier uh, get, a, get a haircut. So that's why I was saying their, their economy has, you can already see that it's happening. Yeah. Um, the one country we have really delved into is Japan. Um, and we, we, we've seen a little bit of a change there in terms of yield curve control. Do you think that's it in terms of policy adjustments from the BOJ? And, and how do you see from a JGB and Yen perspective, things playing out? I think the, uh, the YCC should be eliminated. Because uh, remember that their original purpose of the YCC, introducing YCC was to invert the curve, uh, to, to steepen the curve in order to help uh, the banks. But right now, you don't need to do that anymore. The whole world, the law and the curve is all uh, backed up. And then Japan is the only country that got a positive yield curve. Why the hell you still need that distortion? Actually, become a symbolic 
YCC. So I, if I were to run central bank, I would get rid of it. But in terms of uh, investing, investment game, I think Japanese banks looks great because the currency burning prop, they are minting profits. They have done well. I think we'll continue to do well as long as the curve stays in burning. I don't see why not. So Japan has no inflation, zero inflation prop. Japan's inflation is the entire foreign exchange rate. If you look at the breakdown of Japan's inflation, very co complete offices to what we have here in North America or Europe. It's entirely driven by goods inflation. Service inflation is dead. It tells me that it's completely a currency uh, phenomenon. So as a yen stabilized at this level, Japanese inflation could go back to zero again. And in terms of emerging markets, obviously you kind of started off in emerging markets and we've, uh, you know, I suppose a lot of people have been making a bullish case for emerging markets, but it's been a pretty flat period for a number of years. How do you see it going forward? I think you got to be careful now for China because, you know, you cannot use the usual um, analytical tool to think about China anymore because you got a, you got a geopolitical problem going on here. God knows what kind of a, a restriction you're going to be uh, dealing with. I mean, Americans trying to uh, restrict outward investment to China, you know. So there are lots of regulatory risk uh, that is, is, is on the horizon. So I don't think it is a pure economic monetary policy financial market issue. It is a political issue. It's a geopolitical issue. So... For that, I, you know, I think you have to be a little bit careful. But if it's just pure economics, I would probably start to think about buying some Chinese shares because they are just as a giveaway. Okay, it's already become a giveaway four or five times. You know, for a big platform company, why not? But but I don't know what kind of uh, regulatory uh, a stick that the U.S. is going to swing at you if you bought it. We don't know. So, but I think the emerging market for other countries, I mean, LATAN looks really good. I really like LATAN's bond market. They're like Mexican bonds. 97%, inflation is 5.7. No brainer. Brazil, 11%, bond yields, inflation is 7, 5.7, 6%, around there, depending on which measure you're looking at. No brainer. Currency is stable. So I would, I would invest in those bond markets. Obviously, that's consistent with your treasury's view as well, but is that kind of on a, on, on a multi-year view as well? Do you think things are structurally improving there? 12 months uh, to uh, two years. I mean, inflation. These countries, the bond yields are extraordinarily high. Just think about real yield. Conscious that we're just coming up against time here, and we normally uh, just ask our guests before we wrap up, um, you know, you've been in the markets a long time for people who are starting off in markets what would you, any advice in terms of things to read, things to do, anything that, that have been big influences on you and your career uh, over the years? Uh, this is always, a, this is forever a learning process. I mean, I'm, I feel like I, I still learn, I'm learning. But I think one thing that I learned, and I still remember, I still keep that in mind all the time. You always ask yourself, what is the most difficult trade today? Do the most difficult trade that is usually the right one. That actually guided us to be bullish since last September. We were one month earlier. What was the most difficult trade? Today, I asked myself, what is the most difficult trade today? Nobody wanted. 
So you know the answer. <laughs> yeah, long thing thinking, I guess is what you're saying. Yes. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. I mean, it's definitely, uh, yeah, I've heard that before, you know, in macro trading, uh, it shouldn't feel comfortable. So I guess. If you feel comfortable, you are not going to make money. That's a guarantee. Okay. Well, listen, thank you very much. This has been a, a great conversation, Chen. Thank you very much for doing this today. So to all our listeners, make sure you follow uh, Chen Xiao's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, he's got a lot of great insights and we're living in a truly global macro-driven world, so more than ever to stay well-informed. So from all of us here at Top Traders Unplugged, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back soon with more content. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.